From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Chad Stark, the Senior Vice President of Stark Carpet and the President of Scala Madre. After a brief post-college career in the startup world, Stark joined the family business, eager to modernize its operations to respond to a fast-changing market. We spoke about his experiments selling direct to consumers, his thoughts on the best way for designers to charge for their services, and whether the design industry is ready for a model called Trade Preferred. Universal to the Trade is your partner in design. With a comprehensive range of furniture styles, their trade program offers hassle-free online ordering available through your computer, tablet, or smartphone. Quick shipping with an average of 14 days or less and absolutely no order minimum. And did we mention free shipping? Visit www.universalfurniture.com slash to the trade now to sign up for your account. Or call the design line at 877-804-5535 to speak to a representative today. Still haven't gotten your ticket yet for Business of Home's inaugural Future of Home conference? It's September 9th and 10th in New York City, and yours truly will be hosting, along with my colleagues Sophie Donaldson, Caitlin Peterson, and Fred Nicholas. The speaker lineup includes all-stars like Rent the Runway co-founder Jenny Fleiss, Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic Jerry Saltz, Google's design director Kate Freebern, and many more. Check out futureofhome.com for the full roster. We want you there, our devoted podcast listener. So lock in your spot before we sell out. A special shout out to our biggest sponsors, High Point Market, Google Nest, and Benjamin Moore, who are making this important event possible. See you there. To my point about your family's name being very well known, certainly in this this industry, and and I believe sort of to a, a much broader consumer, I'm wondering if you can tell us a, a little bit about the, the history of your, of your family's company and, and give us a little insight as to what it was like growing up as a, as a young Stark. Sure. So my grandfather founded the business uh, in the late 30s, and he kind of fell into the business because he was on Wall Street, and he went with my grandmother to Europe, to France specifically, and you know, back then he went on a boat. It took a really long time, and so when you go, it's a, it's a long trip. Um, and when he was there, I guess they found some beautiful French handmade rugs and they bought a couple for their apartment, a couple just to have in storage, but they'd never seen anything like it. And my grandmother was a little bit of a fashionista, so she was you know, into design. And when they got back and they were ha- entertaining their friends through you know, cocktails or dinner or whatnot, their friends were blown away by the product and they'd never seen anything like it. So my grandfather, you know, on his next trip, bought some more rugs, came back and was able to sell everything. So he realized there might be an opportunity there, and that's how he started the company. So he quit his job on Wall Street and started Stark in New York as one of the first importers of French handmade rugs. But throughout his life, and until my father and uncle really joined the business, we were really focused just on handmade rugs just in New York. Right. You know, my father and uncle are the ones who uh, made different investments in terms of uh, our manufacturing capabilities, in terms of our distribution and getting new showrooms and basically making us who we are today. And they've done an amazing job scaling the business from the one show and one product to having over 20 locations being distributed internationally uh, and having a very diverse, if not the most diverse, luxury assortment of carpets and rugs. Right. Okay. And your both your father and your uncle joined the business at a, at a relatively young age, right? In, in, in part because your grandfather passed away. Yes, yes exactly. So my grandfather passed away uh, in 1970. So my father and uncle were, you know, in their 
early 20s, and uh, they kind of were figuring out what would make sense for them to work, you know, between school and whatnot. Um, and they really got an education, you know, kind of by fire, just getting thrown in it and working with my grandmother, who obviously was very helpful. Mm. Um, but yeah, they joined even younger than I was. So I can only imagine the challenges they had uh, when they joined the business, uh, given the kind of the catalyst of my grandfather passing. It must have been tough. But yeah, I mean, my early memories, I always interned there when I was in high school. I remember I started as a sales intern. Uh, then I, you know, worked in our processing department, figuring out how to lay out jobs. And so it was always an interesting business to me. I always understood how much opportunity there was to make us a stronger business through the use of technology. Mm. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I was very involved in the tech startup scene and did a couple things there. Um, but yeah, some of my early memories revolve around that. You know, the first project I did, which I always think is funny, was um, we categorized all of our rugs by color and by size. So that way we could let people search for rugs by color and size. <laughs> Which had never been done before. And you know, our salespeople said, oh, this is amazing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is, this, we should be doing this already. So it's, it's been an interesting you know, road continuing to do things like that. Um, which has been exciting. Yeah. So you were at the time when you, when you were young and got out of got out of college, you were thinking you were going to go into technology, and you you had a couple of startups. And yeah, I you know honestly never really thought that I was going to join the business. Um, I always knew it was there and it was interesting and it was successful. And you know everyone I spoke to said how great the company is and how great the brand is. But growing up, I wasn't one of the kids who on these podcasts would be decorating their redecorating their room <laughs> at six years old. You know that that right. wasn't me. I yeah. was the one starting lemonade stands or figuring out how to rent my videos to my sister, which I learned wasn't allowed and stuff like that. So when I went to college, I really wanted to figure out how to kind of create my own legacy and do something myself with my interest in technology and digital and whatnot. And, you know, I did a few startups, two were moderately successful. The one I did after I graduated, I finished a little early. Uh, I did that for about 18 months, almost two years, and, and we ended up shutting it down. Uh, and at that point, you know, I, I had the decision, do I want to move to San Francisco, try to raise money or shut it down? And so we shut it down. And I was like, all right, I'm in New York. I've been out of school for a year. What am I going to do? Uh, and my father approached me and basically said, you can always work for the company. And after discussing it, we settled on if I have the ability to put us on a new computer system, then it would be something I want to do. And so it was a little bit of if you let me do what I want to do, I'll come join. I wouldn't say it was an ultimatum <laughs> like that. But, okay. you know, I kind of talked about the things that I felt were the most important things for business right. today and where I saw here's the what I'd want to do if I were to. Exactly. Come. You know, right. I mean, my father okay. and uncle have been incredible in terms of trusting me, in terms of supporting me and, and allowing me to do the things that I felt were right for the business. Mm. And obviously, over the last seven years, I think I've built some trust with them, yeah. but they were very trusting from the start. But yeah, so I mean, I joined the business and after about a year, things kind of changed for me because I felt, I, I realized rather that I could make my own legacy with the company. And it never dawned on me that the company could become my legacy. It was always thought to me as my father and uncle's legacy mm. or my grandfather's legacy. And once that realization kind of happened and I started learning more about the industry and, you know, the the diverse group of clients that we have, which are always entertaining to, you know, socially or in a business context, uh, I really started loving the business and, and got a real passion for it. Well, and so, and that was part of your early role, seemed to be spending time with, with designers and clients and kind of, and, and learning about the business through that client contact. Yeah, I mean, definitely the early days, but that continues through today. I mean, I probably spend close to 30 to 40% of my time today doing what I call client-facing activities. Right. So that could be you know, a lunch or a breakfast or a presentation in a design office or a meeting in the showroom uh, because you know, our company's kind of adopted this 
philosophy that, you know, customer feedback is king, right? You know, yeah. no one was, knows more than your customers. Right. And by continuing to engage our clients and ask feedback from them and get their perception on, and perspective on different things, it's allowed us to make really smart decisions, whether it's new products that they gave us the idea to do to different service offerings and, and things like that. So it's very important that we continue to do that. And and that's influenced some of the decisions that you've made about where to where to sort of take the business. You had your own ideas in improving the computer system, improving the website, but it sounds like you've learned a great deal from spending time with with clients. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no one knows their business better than the designers, and you know they have ch- unique challenges. Everyone has different challenges, and l- hearing about those challenges identifies new problems that we want to solve as well as can give us ideas. I mean, we have a, an amazing collection coming out this fall. The idea came from a designer and, you know, basically the number one feedback we hear from designers, there's really two, but one is, uh, you know, they want things yesterday, right? The right. need for speed yeah. um, without sacrificing customability and customization uh, and also performance. Uh, and so just to talk about one of them quickly, you know, we, I met with a designer, I went to dinner with him and he said, you know, it'd be really great if, I can, no hand knotted can't be sped up, but you know, hand tufted as a quality, you can do things quicker. My understanding of it is X, Y, Z. And you know, fast forward to today, we're launching a collection where we're stocking a hundred colors of wool, silk, and shiny nylon fibers, we're stocking the yarn at the mill. So if someone wants to do a custom sample, they can get it in a week and a custom rug in four weeks. And because the production time of the actual tufting is not that long, it's just the yarn dyeing that takes a while. And by stocking those colors, uh, you know, this is not an idea that we, we never had before, but the way that this designer framed it for us made us realize how big of an opportunity this might be. And we collaborated with him on the colors. We collaborated with him on our introduction designs. And, you know, it came about because of him. Interesting. What else have you learned? In terms of the consumer preferences, we talked about the need for speed, but more than that, it's convenience and accessibility. Consumers today are so used to finding all the information that they need uh, and not just being able to buy it quickly, but doing all the research that needed to validate their decisions of something to buy. And I think an industry that's done an amazing job adapting to this is the auto industry. You know, you used to go to a dealer back in the 70s and you'd have to learn about the car at the dealership. Today, you go on you know, Maserati's website and you build every version of the car. It's a luxury experience, you know, you amazing imagery. And then you still go to the dealership, but what used to take 60 minutes now maybe takes 15, where yeah. you were learning from the you know, sales rep or uh, whatnot, you are now actually teaching them about what you want and they're learning from you. And they're kind of, their role has changed a lot because the consumer has been so empowered. And so that, that desire for information and for ability to learn and about the products and services that consumers are engaging in, that I think has been one of the biggest changes is just their preferences. Mm. Uh, and many of those consumers, you know, you know, often can't afford luxury products and services today. But what will be interesting is in 10 years from now, those consumers who maybe are making a lot of money, they're Henry's, as I, as I call them, the high earners who are not rich yet, you know, making a lot of money but have no savings. Mm-hmm. Um, in 10 years, they'll have more money, but they already have the preferences of how they shop. All of a sudden, they're not going to change and say, hey, you know, now I'd rather have less information and I'd rather have an offline experience. You know, they're not going to go backwards. And so that's kind of the biggest change I'm seeing from a preference standpoint, this accessibility, convenience, and obviously speed. And on the other side, I think it's just the competitive landscape. You know, we used to be in a business that if you had the best product, you won. You know, the world, uh, you know, had limited suppliers. It was hard to find these suppliers, but the world's now flat. You know, modern communication technologies, modern transportation technologies, you know, the ability to source things via the Internet. It's increased the supply. It's increased the ability for, you know, stores to source good product at good prices. 
And now we're not in a supply-driven economy. We're more in a demand-driven economy. Mm -hmm. We need to generate the demand, not just have the supply. And people are doing things in interesting ways, you know, from other companies that you've had on here, like the Maiden Homes, for example, which are, you know, creating a $6,000 couch for $2,000 and, you know, different business models that have overhead structures to support this new way of doing business. They haven't existed until the last 10 years. And so how the competitive landscape has evolved, the sophistication of retailers, e-tailers, et cetera, I think that's been one of the biggest changes as well. Mm. Most industries are feeling behind their customer. Like we're running a little bit behind and we need to be more open to experimentation and taking our business in some different directions in order to sort of leapfrog ahead and maybe catch up to where some of our customers are. Part of what I think we feel the industry needs to do in general is, is be more open to some of this experimentation. And you've found some very specific ways to do that both with product and, and with different marketplaces sure. where you wouldn't have expected to see your, your product. So our mentality and approach really has been what we're calling internally the mindset for innovation, which you know, requires a couple key components, one of which is playing to win versus not to lose. And that's something I think our industry is, struggles with. Uh, you know, we're often worried about upsetting what we have. And so because of that, we don't try to go after something new. Couldn't agree more. And you know, it's something that is tough, but... To be innovative, you have to play to win. And in line with that, this idea of adaptive experimentation, right? Continuing to do experiments, but defining them, measuring them, what is success of them, and then adapting based on your learnings. Uh, that is something we do regularly at Stark, trying to figure out how to innovate. Because at the end of the day, you guys cover disruption more than anyone else in our <laughs> industry. And if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone else is going to. And that's like the innovator's dilemma, right? Is if you're not willing to make your previous invention pointless, then you're gonna become pointless and, and, you're, and you're, no one's gonna remember. And so, you know, some of the things that we've done and really we've looked at it in this framework of how do we continue to reach designers around the country, around the world uh, at different levels of their career? Because we have this, you know, amazing client base all around the country and all around the world who've been very loyal for very long, but the way we reached them was very simple. You know, we had beautiful product, we had showrooms in major markets where they would travel to because they had to, and we advertised in print. And you know, with all these efforts that we're doing, I think it's important to note that we are a trade company. We're gonna continue focusing on designers, but that doesn't mean that we are going to put our blinders on and not look at the rest of the world and what's going on around us. And so whether it's you know, figuring out how to create a communication and a product strategy that makes our brand feel more approachable, what we've done with Stark Studio Rugs and Stark Studio Rugs Essentials, or if it's you know, figuring out what other parts of the industry we can be a part of, like hospitality and contract, which is a big focus of ours now. You know, we have a lot of uh, bullets going out right now. You know, we're mm -hmm. shooting bullets, yeah. not shooting cannons. Right. And the idea is when you shoot bullets, you see which bullets work and, yeah. and you put a cannon behind it. And so, you know, the initiatives that we've really done there, you know, we believe that there will always be a physical component to our industry and our business. And we're going to want to continue to have stores. But again, how can we experiment with opening locations in a way that maybe is the non-traditional sense? You know, is there a way we can find out how to partner with companies so that way we don't have to take on the rent expense, we don't have to manage a payroll, but we can, you know, leverage our exclusive and, and products and our custom capabilities and our technology and our marketing and our brand, you know, how can we do that? And so those are kind of touching on a few of the different things that we're doing at a very high level. It seems to me as if you're, you're taking some very measured risks with a relatively small part of the, 
the business, right? And that's sort of what you what you do. You put a little bit out there. T- t- tell me in, in detail, just for listeners who might not be familiar, the Stark Studio rugs, just for example. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first joined the business you know, and I started asking designers, you know, do you know the company? What do you know about it? What's your perception? There were two things that I would hear pretty regularly. Oh, I know Stark. My grandmother loved it. And, oh, you know, I, can, I don't have the clients who can afford Stark. And this is not just from when I joined the company, but this has been consistent is right. we have this perception of being very high priced and, you know, we're not the cheapest in the block. Don't get me wrong. So that's something that we've really taken into consideration. We've always talked about this, you know, fashion has like the Armani and the Armani exchange, right? They, it's one company with two separate assortments with different price points targeting different consumers. And, and how can we do something like that? And the fundamental difference has been, you know, they're a retail company. And so if we created another line and it's, you know, retail or you know, it, it's not exactly the same. And, you know, we had this hypothesis, let's go back a year or a couple of years ago when we started developing Stark Studio Rugs uh, as more of this vehicle to communicate about a less expensive assortment, uh, as well as reach a new audience and, 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 and give consumers a way to engage our company and buy stuff from us. We always thought of it as a larger opportunity initially for the world of direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. What we've learned in doing this for now in a marketplace sales capacity, selling it on a couple of websites over the last six months is that while we are getting some sales from consumers, we're reaching an entire audience of interior designers who would never have thought of us. And so by accident, we've created this marketing vehicle that's bringing designers into our showrooms, having them establish accounts with us because now they know that they can get a rug for under a thousand dollars. And what's so interesting about the initiative is at first, designers have said, oh, well, you know, are you dumbing down your product? Are you making a lower quality product? And because of the nature of made-to-order carpet, and you know, when I say made-to-order carpet, you know, we have rolls and rolls of inventory where we you know, will either send it out for someone to install or we'll fabricate it into a rug. And you know, we'll pull it down from the shelf, we'll cut it into a custom shape, a standard size, put finishing on it, whether it's wide cotton binding, we'll put nail heads in it maybe. I mean, we do all these amazing made-to-order things. And because of the labor there and something's being done to it, it drives up the price. By pre-making standard sizes on the loom, it's the same quality product, but it brings the price down significantly. And so we're offering the same quality product, but without the customization to all of our designers, which is a product that they've never had access to before. We've created now a vehicle to communicate to them that we have this less expensive assortment, which we're seeing is uh, getting more of them into our showrooms and having them establish a relationship with us. And to support the inventory, we've opened it up to the world of direct-to-consumer. And we haven't found great success selling direct to consumer. I think the success we found is more on the design side, Mm. um, but it's still very early stages. And so we remain very kind of flexibly persistent in our approach. You know, we know what we want to do. You know, our goal as a company is to be used in one area of every high-end design project globally. And that's kind of our BHAG, as Jim Collins calls it. And is that that your goal or is that like, is that your family collectively like really wants this this huge this big hairy audacious goal which is sort of what the BHAG from Jim Collins is right I, mean, I think it's been driven by me but right. yeah not but it's supported by <laughs> yeah. you know the, no, the no, rest no. of the leadership they've team all agreed and they right and they think it gives them a good direction to to move in so let's stay with that and your role at the company my role has evolved to really be running the day-to-day of the business my father and uncle are still very involved you know they focus on the things that they love which they deserve at this point in their career which is really product they love developing product sourcing product and and i don't know if they love managing the inventory (laughs) of the product but that's what they do that's what they're stuck Um, with but when it comes to the day-to-day business you know we have a leadership team of five and my role is 
coordinating the efforts of every function of the business with that team directly, as well as some specific accountabilities myself with a separate team around the customer experience, which is about getting feedback and operationalizing that feedback and seeing how it can help our business. Uh, the employee experience, which is kind of a subset of HR, uh, knowing you know the Richard Branson philosophy that if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of the customers and you'll win in the long run. So culture is a big focus of mine personally as well as the world of e-commerce, uh, of marketing, and of training. You know, I'm a big learner, mm-hmm. uh, continuous learner. I try to read a book a month. And so yeah. helping develop the training content, not just the typical training content of you know, fun- job-specific training or onboarding, but also management training and you know, different ways of using empathy to coach and things like that and develop people's careers. And I have a big passion for that as well. And that makes the culture really strong. And that's what the best companies have. And empathy is one of many things that I feel like we are, that we are doing or we're trying to do to, to try to create that environment. And how were you received when you first came on board? There were challenges for sure, <laughs> especially as it relates to technology. You know, I think our industry, whether it's the people inside of companies or, or designers are intimidated by technology. And I definitely think that many people at the company thought I was trying to replace them with robots. Right. Uh, right. I don't know where that came from, but that that was so much the the thinking at the time. Chad wants to replace us all with robots. 100%. People would actually say that. 100%. And you know, to an extent, <laughs> I think people still feel that and yeah. you know when have we talk you, about have you replaced a bunch of people with robots we Jan? do not have a single employed robot at this point there is no robot working for no Star- ro- right maybe now. at material bank Ro- i was gonna say yes there, <laughs> there are a bunch adam sandow has a whole bunch of did he end up naming a robot after you i hope way? so i mean I that, told was, him he needed to. that was talked about but i, I don't know. know if it ever i'll follow happened. up with him okay but <laughs> people did think you were trying to replace them with technology of one kind or another and that was never your intention of course not. To set the record straight. To set the record straight. I mean, my view on technology is if we can empower customers to do more, that right. saves us time. Right. You know, they do the work for us, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And if we can empower our sales teams to spend time doing things that cannot be replaced by technology, technology just makes them more efficient. You know, if, if I could grow the income and sales level for every salesperson by 20% by using better technology everyone wins. The salespeople make more money. The company makes more money. The company can use that money to invest it in our support departments and the people there. I mean, we are a sales organization at the end of the day. Um, but this technology is view, our goal is to supplement our customers and our, our sales teams with more efficiency through technology. And, you know, I still think there's people scared about that, but by being very empathetic to their concerns, understanding their perspective, kind of attuning to, you know, what their concerns are. It's allowed us to take an approach where we, you know, we have an idea, we try to get feedback, we listen to our employees like crazy, you know, we ask anonymous surveys, you know, we're really trying to be customer and employee centric. If the two things that I could leave as my legacy mm. is being customer centric and being employee centric, like check, I win. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I'm going for. Well, so, and, are, and are people very forthcoming in those anonymous surveys? Absolutely. There's meaningful feedback. Like for example, one of the most recent feedbacks I got was there was a perception that they felt, you know, our upper management was only addressing the feedback that they wanted to address. Ah. And I thought that was interesting because we were consciously choosing not to address things we couldn't act on right away. But what it made us realize is, okay, well, we need to acknowledge all the feedback and be realistic and honest about our abilities to execute on them. You know, technology is, is disruptive, but I don't think there's anything more uh, threatening to a business than not being customer-centric. The one thing I can say with a large degree of certainty is the level of excitement at our company about the future is at an all-time high. 
I mean, there's no question in my mind that people are more excited about the direction of the company and what the future is going to hold than they've ever been. Because I don't think that the company has ever communicated as clearly about what we're trying to do. You know, everything from what we started doing, you know, quarterly town halls where we, I give a presentation to the entire company about the company, including being transparent about our financial performance of the previous quarter. And just that transparency builds trust. Mm. And when you talk about the vision and, and how we're going to get there, um, it's, it's exciting. And I'm excited. Obviously, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> tell. And I think our leadership team's excited. And I think yeah. generally, you know, everyone's excited. I think there are concerns, you know, going back to our core business being two interior designers and we have an entire sales force who've done this for a long time and it's changing faster than anything they've ever seen. Um, and so there are definitely concerns and, you know, I've had to combat internal perceptions that maybe some of the, like, are we neglecting our core customers? And that's so against my approach. We're absolutely not neglecting them. We're just evolving the model to include them and, but also include more parts. And, and, so what, and what was creating that perception? Why was there even the thought that you were somehow not paying attention to your core customers? Sure. So, I mean, with all this newness, you mean, or, well, yeah, I mean, also different initiatives. So like when we talk about Stark Studio Rugs Essentials, for example, right. um, that is something we're selling direct to consumer. And so, oh, are we stealing oh. business from our designers? Or more so, you know, our business strategy and some of the, one of the things we're really focused on now is wholesale, the mm -hmm. whole, you know, selling to stores. We have a business where we sell to, you know, about a thousand carpet stores. And, you know, we also own a manufacturing facility in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So because of this uh, vertical integration, it's allowed us to have things like exclusive Broadloom and, and whatnot. And we're really focused now on diversifying our revenue streams and our customer base so that we're not too concentrated in any one thing. So we have kind of a lot of plans to continue to grow our core trade business, but plans to grow our wholesale business at a larger uh, scale because it's starting from a much smaller place. Right. So, you know, it's sometimes we, I've gotten in the habit of talking about some of the priorities of diversifying our revenue without talking enough about the things that we're doing to support our trade. And, you know, we're constantly doing things to support the trade. You know, we just launched the industry's first hand-knotted silk broadloom, where we're stocking rolls of silk hand-knotted carpet for four-week delivery up to an 18 by 35 foot piece. I mean, that's like absurd. It takes nine months to make a roll of inventory. Yeah. But, you know, our designers say, if I pay more, can I get it quicker? The top end is doing great. You know, so what we're seeing is the, the top end of the market is going up. You know, the, there are the price conscious consumers and what's in the middle is what's struggling and they're either going up or down. And so we're, you know, for the trade, we're continuing to elevate our assortment from a design standpoint, from a price point standpoint, from a service standpoint, investing in technology tools to make them more efficient. And we have a lot of plans to grow with the trade. Right. Um, but sometimes I get in the habit of talking internally a little more about the other wholesale initiatives because that for us is important to kind of diversify our streams of revenue. Of course. And, and do you think that, that that's a model that other companies within the trade industry should be, should be looking at? I mean, there, there's this notion that one of the things that's, that's sort of unsettling for the, for the trade is that many of these companies have all of their eggs in that one basket, so to speak, right? That, that, that's their only customer. Is, is designers. They don't, they don't have a wholesale business on the side or they don't have some, right, yeah. some other stream of revenue. Those companies need to do what's right for them. 
and not everyone has goals of being used in every design project globally, right? <laughs> right. That's not everyone's goal. You, right. know, you can build a very profitable, sustainable business focusing on designers and not expanding to consumers depending on what your overhead structure is and your scale. So I don't think every company has to do it. It just boils down to what your goals are and, and something that we've used internally, which you know, we got to, I think we're still in the, L, the beginning phases of is this idea of a company credo. So our first responsibility is to the professional interior design trade because we know to live our BHAG, to be used in every design project globally, um, we need professionals because they're the only way to reach projects at scale, right? They're doing multiple projects versus a one-off project. Mm -hmm. But we also know that you know, as part of our credo, we need to continue to engage the direct-to-consumer shopper who wants to engage with brands, learn about brands, and we need to make them feel like we're not ignoring them. And so kind of there's two parts to our credo, one that's always been our credo, and then kind of a newer one that talks about the evolution of our motto. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we're still kind of finalizing the verbiage. And, you know, it's not necessarily meant for customers. It's meant for us when we make decisions. Yeah. But, you know, for us, I, can, I can't speak for the other companies. It's important for us to continue to do things that make the designers needed, that make, you know, exclusive products, special pricing, custom services, and things like that. But also separately engaging this consumer because we know that without gauging, engaging this consumer, we're also missing so many opportunities to engage designers outside of major markets who are like these consumers. And so it's, that company credo idea has really helped us uh, in our approach. Attending High Point Market this fall? Be sure to visit Universal to the Trades Designers Lounge. Located inside Universal Furniture's showroom at 101 South Hamilton Street, the Designers Lounge was created to answer designers' needs during High Point Market. Featuring over 2,000 square feet of space, the Designer's Lounge offers Wi-Fi, snacks, beverages, workspace, and charging stations to help you get organized between appointments. Now the Designer's Lounge isn't all about work. In need of a quick hair or makeup touch-up? Come visit our Glam Squad for a beauty refresh, or stop by for a cocktail pick-me-up whenever the mood strikes. Learn more about the Universal To The Trade Designer's Lounge at universalfurniture.com slash Designer's Lounge. We should talk a little bit about Scala Madre because that, that was a major change that, that came about as a result of, of you being on board with the company. So was it a merger? Was it an acquisition? What happened with Scala Madre and sort of how that all came about? Absolutely. And, and just to go back to something you asked in the beginning, some of my earliest memories in the industry, you know, I was with my father when we decided to buy Gray Watkins in Fontaine. And so when I was in high school, I went with him on a plane down to announce to, to meet Gray Watkins herself and announce to her team that they were becoming part of the Stark Fabric umbrella. So that was, yeah. kind of made me think of it as one of my early memories, which was always an interesting one. She's an amazing lady. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so Stark Fabric has been around since we bought Old World Weavers in the, in the 90s. And since then, my father really ran it for a very long time. Uh, and grew it to have, you know, national distribution, bought other companies like Ray Watkins and Fontill, brought on lines like Liliev uh, and Colony and some of the other distributed brands that we sell exclusively in the U.S. and really created this multi-line showroom that Stark Fabric was. Mm. And I started getting involved in the fabric business, I'd say in 2015. So after I was with the company for about three years, three, four years, and I found it so interesting, some of the differences that I thought wouldn't have been there between our carpet business and our fabric business. So one challenge we always had was that if you ask a designer who Stark was, they would say, oh, carpets. You say, okay, well, we have fabrics too, you know? And by creating Stark fabric as the umbrella, um, you know, that made people think of carpet first. So that was one challenge we had. Uh, and also I thought was so interesting is that the price point is very different. You know, you could buy a couple yards of fabric for a couple hundred dollars. And in a room, you use a lot more textiles and wall coverings than you do carpets. Usually one carpet, two carpets, you know, maybe three carpets, but you could use, you know, 20 different textiles in a single room. 
coupled with the number of textile suppliers compared to the number of carpet suppliers, it's just a very different business. So all of that was so interesting to me because I thought they were so similar. And as I started getting more involved uh, in Stark Fabric, uh, we, we, we had a relationship with Scott Mandre prior. We used to distribute them uh, in the D&D building. And Louis Renzo, who was the sole owner before and who's now our business partner, uh, he was running that company, so we knew him. And in looking at our businesses together in late 2016, we realized there were a lot of opportunities to put our businesses together. And specifically, you know, Scott Mandre sales were road-based versus Stark Fabric sales were showroom-based. Mm. You know, we had both luxury brands, but the product lines weren't really competing. And we were more of a multi-line showroom versus they were a kind of a specialist, more narrow product focus uh, company. And no one confused the Scott Mandre brand with carpets and rugs. Right. <laughs> Uh, so we merged with them and now we are in a partnership with Louis Renzo. He is the CEO of the company. I'm the president of the company. Okay. And my father's also on the board. Um, and <laughs> okay. that has been a, an a amazing opportunity for us. And, you know, Stark Fabric, fair or not fair, didn't get the attention that it deserved when it was under the Stark umbrella. And part of the reason we wanted to find a business partner in Lewis, and obviously all the reasons I just said, was we wanted to have someone who was you know, just as invested as us in the success, because obviously we know how much is changing in the textile world and the challenges that that's having. And we thought this was a great opportunity. And so two and a half years in, I'm happy to say it's going well. Mm. Um, you know, it's had up and downs. I mean, it started really strong. We got over a little overexcited. <laughs> we overspent a little bit, which was kind of my mistake. In, in, in what way, when you say you overspent a little bit? You know, we just got a lot really excited about different initiatives. Okay. And so we were investing in a lot of new things before letting the things that we invested in kind of percolate. And so we were spending revenue that we didn't have yet yeah. on even more channels of revenue. You know, but we've corrected course there and kind of managed our overhead. And so this year, you know, we're, we're more profitable than we were last year already at this point. So it's been a huge success in that sense. And we're kind of at the final phase of the merger. It's taken two and a half years because obviously, you know, we had two showrooms in seven markets. We had two warehouses, you know. We had a lot of things that we had to get through. There was a lot of duplication that you had yeah, to get Yeah, two systems. Sure. Um, and so now I think like the completion of the, the whole merger will be early September when we relaunch the Scalamandre.com website. What's different about Scalamandre than before is now we're this multi-line showroom, kind of the house of Scalamandre that has all these different brands at all these different price points. And so the site we're launching really tells the story of these brands, huge emphasis on search and complete uh, e-commerce for interior designers to be able to order samples, make place reserves, place orders, kind of spend a lot of time building the site. You know, there's a couple of things I'm not going to mention right now that are going to be that pretty innovative. might be happening That might be happening. Scalamandra. We have a couple of innovative things going on, and it's super exciting. And yeah. we're definitely taking this adaptive experimentation and playing to win mentality. Uh, and I've been so appreciative of how how well the Scalamandre teams have responded to this mindset for innovation. You know, we had a conference call about something we're planning on doing. And I was like, I had my boxing gloves up ready to fight because <laughs> I thought it was going to be so much pushback and everyone was on board and it like blew me away. And so, you know, kudos to the whole Scalamandre team and to Lewis and, and, and my business partner and, and his two sons are in the business also. And, you know, it's been a really interesting ride. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a lot of opportunity there as well. And so I have to kind of navigate my time, but, you know, it is a merger. We have a business partner and you know, I right. think we're in a great position moving forward. Okay. Yeah. And from a product standpoint, you know, we're, we're absolutely maintaining the integrity of what Old World Weavers and Scott Mandre was always about. Right. But we listen to our customer feedback. You know, performance is a, is a big component of it. So for indoor-outdoor fabrics and things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a changing world. And fabric, because of the competitive landscape and because of the direct-to-consumer upholstery world, I think it's being disrupted more quickly than the world of carpet exactly and and as you were just saying 
it has its own unique challenges that can't be answered by going direct to consumer in, exactly. in all these different marketplaces. So where do you go with the fabric industry? Oh, well, if geez. I had the answer, <laughs> if I to, had that, the answer no. to that, um, it's, you know, we have a lot of different things going on. I mean, it really goes back to being customer centric and, you know, but at the same time, to your point, understanding that you can be customer centric, but not every, you don't need hundred percent alignment with all your customers about the things you're doing. Cause that might be unrealistic. Right. And so I think technology is a huge component of that because of the size of orders and mm. the price point of the product, you know, making it so customers can do their own work and have a full e-commerce experience, I think is huge. And that's going to make a big difference to our business, which some other companies already have, but we've been behind because of the merger. Um, so I think leveraging technology to make clients and customers more independent and be able to find things more quickly, get samples of things more quickly, be able to place orders more quickly while empowering our sales reps and our sales teams to spend very little time at the computer and more time reaching and soliciting new business and being in front of clients. You know, if we have that relationship and we are top of mind, you know, if there is a place for unfinished textiles and wall coverings and furnishing and whatnot, uh, we just got to slowly adapt our overhead structure to support the new ways of doing business and new ways of doing sales. And that's the challenge that all companies in our industry have across product categories is the overhead structure needs to change. It's not about spending less money. It's about spending money on different things than you used to. And so like, you know, marketing and marketing spend. You know, when we look at the world of these marketplaces and, you know, their revenue models, they take a commission or, or something like that. You know, for us, we look at that as a marketing expense. If we're it, taking place in a, in a marketplace to get our product in front of someone that we may not have been in front of before, mm. we might have to pay a commission to, to get that customer. We might even pay a commission on sales we would have gotten otherwise from customers who are already giving us business. But until we try it, we're not going to know if it works. And where that money comes from is maybe instead of doing a print ad, we'll work with all these companies or, you know, and those are the decisions we need to make. Well, and I'm, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because I, I love this notion of looking at that as a, as a marketing expense or as a, an experiment in, in a different way. It's, it's not about necessarily that you're trying to conquer the consumer market by experimenting with some of this. You've got the opportunity to get the brand in front of a whole new group of people. And again, you get to see in real time, what do these people want? What are they responding to? Is it the price point? Is it the speed with which we can get this product? And it's, it's just today, it's very challenging to know how to market to what we perceive to be this new customer that we're not getting, right? Yeah, I mean, just think of it this way. So there's no question designers are browsing these websites. Whether they're purchasing, we're not sure about. Uh, they are in many capacities, but some design firms maybe prefer not to. But they are looking. And if you land on Cherish and, or Perigold and you see a Stark Studio Rugs item, guess what's going to happen over the next week? That item is going to follow you to every website you go. So these companies are doing the marketing for us. And just from a sheer impression standpoint, it makes sense to participate. Now, obviously, you know, we've learned this direct-to-consumer marketplace strategy for us has been an evolution of the last 15 years, ever since we first did a, a warehouse sale uh, you know, in New York City or in, in Chicago or in Charlotte or wherever we, we've done them uh, to try to figure out how do we liquidate inventory. And when we, One King's Lane first launched, we got so excited by the potential that we maybe made some wrong decisions. You know, we, would put not we would put our exclusive product up there or a new product, and that upset our customers <laughs> and we yeah. learned from that. And so the evolution of this, of our assortment strategy for these marketplaces has come after learning from mistakes. You know, you obviously, you learn more about your mistakes than you, uh, about what to do from your mistakes than your successes. 
And, you know, I, I, we look at it as there are eyeballs of people who are interested in our product, whether they can buy from us today or not. We need to make sure that they know our brand because at the end of the day, the biggest threat to our business long-term, there's two. People stop using designers, which I don't think will ever happen. Uh, and if we can't relate to the next generation of consumer, designer or average consumer. And we look at this marketplace strategy as a way to really do both because again, what we're seeing is that people are coming to our showrooms from things they learned on these marketplaces. And I can't emphasize that enough is, you know, we think there's an opportunity absolutely selling more product direct to consumer. I'm not gonna, you know, lie and say we don't see that opportunity, but what we're learning in practice is some of our hypotheses around the size of that opportunity were miscalculated. And the real opportunity goes to reaching designers in different markets with less expensive products, making them a customer for 45 years, and then having the lifetime value of, of one of our core clients. Right. You spend a lot of time with designers, as we've talked about. What are they saying to you? Well, obviously, pricing is something they all talk about and how to charge and, you know, prices being available on these other websites. You know, some clients will try to figure it out and, and say, oh, well, how are you charging me this? I'm, it says it's available for this. And mm -hmm. so they definitely are concerned and don't know the answer, nor do I or anyone on what the right way to price is, nor do I think there's really one right answer. Uh, as products and services uh, will, you know, firms will offer different services at different price points in the future. And there'll be all these models from the high touch, high price ones of the way design was done forever to these low cost, low alternatives like the Modsies of the world or the, you know, home polishes of the world. Mm. Uh, and I'm uh, sorry, the Havenleys to the home polish and decor aids, which is kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of different ones. I do hear unrelated to the design industry, but designers have the same challenges that any business owner has, which is people. You know, that's one of the biggest things I'm hearing is they're having trouble finding and keeping great people. Uh, and maybe that's because technology has lowered the barrier to entry of being a design firm. So after a couple of years of experience, someone who's less experienced would just try to start their own firm, builds a portfolio by working with companies like the Havenleys uh, of the world, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, so that maybe is one challenge, but definitely the consumer shopping behaviors of, of trying to find products themselves and trying to validate pricing themselves, as well as the people issues is the two things I'm hearing the most. Yeah. You've, you've spoken in the past about, and you just mentioned DecorAid, for example, that, that companies like DecorAid have become a much more meaningful customer for, for Stark. T tell me a little bit about that and, and sort of how you work with them. And, and Yeah, I mean, they're, they're interesting. Them and uh, Home Polish. Home Polish. Sorry, I'm getting confused yeah. with Havenly Home Polish. <laughs> um, but Home Polish and DecorAid are similar in that they're not this e-design model. They're a technology-powered design firm that you know, it does offline design, but gets customers online. And, you know, the biggest difference between the two of them, based on listening to the podcasts and, and my conversations with people is that, you know, one is venture backed and one is not. Right. And being venture backed creates event horizons that you need to reach, you know, one year, three years, whatever it is that investors want to get their return versus being kind of a homegrown company without external pressures, you know, you could have a different approach. Mm. And so with companies like them, you know, we look at them like any design firm, except the difference is they are just more demanding. So they don't want to have to wait for a quote. They want to be able to generate their own quote. They don't want to wait for an answer. They want to be able to find their own information. And so I look at it as it's, it's, it's been great for us because I know that if we can build a service model and tools that work with companies like Home Polish and Decorade, then every designer in America will also be able to use it. 
And so I wouldn't say we're developing things just for them, but it shows what I think the future is going to hold in many capacities where designers are going to be more and more designing and they're going to have tools to do other things for them, whether it's these softwares now that are kind of really emerging, which design software will win, right, as you guys put it. And then what they need from vendors will change because of the tools they continue to get. You know, I believe that visualization technology is going to become less expensive and better and they'll be able to spend less time proposing products to clients because they'll have the tools to do it quicker and more effectively. And then they'll be able to transact on all those products more quickly and more effectively with all the companies that they're proposing. And so now if you're as a company, as a supplier, your products aren't in a format that they can start including in the long term, that might be a threat to you because they're going to want to do things that save them time so they can deal with these other issues that they're having right. and what their role is in being a designer, where they spend their time is going to change. And so we need to adapt our model to understand those changes and in the conversations with designers, stay in tune with how that's changing and then provide products and services and technology integrations and things like that, that make it easy for them to work with us. You know, more what I hear is, the need for service and standing behind product and what we call peace of mind services. That's our number one brand promise is delivering peace of mind to designers, knowing that we have their back, we'll stand behind them. If they get in a tough situation, you know, we will do whatever we can. Uh, but another one of our brand promises is around convenience. And I think that's the one we probably have the most work to do being a convenient shopping experience. But that's what designers want is they want to shop for products where they have peace of mind service, you know, it's convenient for them mm. and then they feel supported. When I talk to some of the you know, top tier clients that we have who have you know, these huge budget projects where you know, price is not, never an issue, and I ask them, well, what do you think about us you know, selling on these marketplaces? They're like, do whatever you want. It's like, my clients aren't getting that product. If they wanted that product, they wouldn't hire me. Right. And so that's kind of the feedback I'm hearing at the top end is you know, custom is in a way exclusive, exclusive product because sure. it's an exclusive service. Sure. And you know, our custom business is, is growing probably the quickest of any product category is our custom business. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most expensive, but maybe designers are finding that, you know, the idea of custom is a great way for them to sell their value to consumers and their potential clients and current clients. And I believe the firms that are doing really well now have come up with really concise and strong ways of explaining their value mm. saying, oh, well, I'm not this marketplace. If you want to buy that product from the marketplace, go for it. But here are all the reasons you hired me right. and kind of reeling the, the consumer back in saying, okay, I, I, that, that's, you're right. You know, I'll, I'll defer to you. You know, my personal opinion based on anecdotal research, I'm not mm. going to say this is based on kind of any statistical significant research, um, but I believe that the, the model of fixed fee plus hourly is a model for the future because I think it's the most customer centric, you know, charging a commission. So doing away with the markup on product. I mean, I'm so the challenge is that's the most profitable way designers make money, right? right. Is doing a markup on product. Right. And so it's hard to move away from that. And not necessarily every firm has to move away from that. If you have the clients who can afford it, no problem. But I think the consumer of the future is not going to trust that. And I just look at myself, you know, if I, hired a designer to do a project with me and they were proposing two rugs, one mm. for 10,000. That was not exactly what I wanted. Uh, and one for 8,000. That was exactly what I wanted. They would maybe say buy the $10,000 one and maybe they're trustworthy. And most designers I've met are trustworthy, but how you charge impacts so much how you behave. And yeah. if no one, if the industry as a whole stopped making money on commission, all these problems would be solved. Because then they could buy, they could, the consumers could buy from whoever they want. The designers are still making their money. It doesn't compete with them working with these marketplaces. It doesn't compete with them, whatever we're trying to do to 
expand our reach from a, a communication standpoint. And you know, I'm not saying everyone should do that. I want to clarify, right? I'm not saying the industry should do that today. Yeah. But if I was a designer starting a firm today, based on what I knew, you know, if, if you do a couple of projects, you learn. You do one, you don't charge enough. You do another, you charge too much. You know, over time, you'll figure out what makes the most sense. And by coupling fixed fee and hourly, and maybe fixed fee is okay. I think they're going to spend this much. Thirty percent of that, or forty percent of that, or whatever they want to charge, is the fixed fee. And on top of that, I'll charge hourly. Like it doesn't mean the economics need to be different, mm. but the packaging of information and and the the activities to build trust can be different if you structure it and frame it a different way. Yeah. It's hard for me to believe it doesn't ultimately go that way. In the end, I'm inclined to agree. I think, and as you and I have talked about, pricing fabrics and carpets and and all of these things where where pricing is still so so murky is is one of the things that has to change in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. Absolutely. And like five minutes from now, because really it's just, it's just ridiculous that we continue to lose so much business to retail in part because retail can just be so much more transparent and so much easier to work with from that perspective. Uh, so uh, whether the DFA or some other organization is going to be able to, to make that change, I think ultimately some big player in the industry is going to have to make that change. And everyone knows that and everyone privately has those conversations uh, from the high level businesses to the lower level businesses. And they go, who's, you know, who's going to be first and then what's going to happen, right? I mean, that's how it's going to come about. Yeah, and I think there will be a domino effect. I mean, you know, I think that all the noise and the concern doesn't always come from the, the big customers. Yeah. And absolutely, you know, going back to what we did with One Kings Lane, in many ways, I felt that Star kind of took the hit on behalf of the industry when we started working with One Kings Lane and companies like that. Um, but it advanced the industry and we're fine. You know, yeah. it didn't put us out of business. And, you know, it's just a tough balancing act. And I think everyone needs to do it in their own speed, in their own way, and what makes sense for their business. And, you know, depending on what your business is, your current model may be fine, but it all, it all goes back to what your goals are. And, you know, for our goals, I think that a transparent communication is important internally and externally and how we do that and in what way we do that, you know, knowing that I'm not saying we want to sell retail on our website, but how we communicate about things like product assortment, pricing, that's something that we need to strongly consider of what makes the most sense to make our brand seem approachable and relatable as while well maintaining its luxury status. Right, right. Let's have the future conversation a little bit, right? So now, because we're getting so close to the conference, and FYI, Chad Stark will be appearing at the Future of Home conference. Surprise. So, so we're very excited about that. Chad and, and David Sutherland will be sitting down for what I know will be a very interesting conversation, in part about the future of, of trade and where much of this is, is going. So I don't want to completely give away our conversation now, but... When you look at some of the changes that you're most focused on making with an eye towards the next sort of five or, or 10 years, what do you think is going to be most important? I think the things that will be most important relate to the changing consumer preferences we talked about is if it's not easy for someone to find all the information they want, then you can't build trust. And how do we use technology to build that trust and be more transparent about what our businesses are doing? as well as empower them to actually act on that information. You know, and it's, if we save them time, they'll prefer us. And the biggest change I see is the tools that companies like Stark and trade companies, companies like Scalamandre will be making to empower consumers to work on, on their own time, at their own pace, 
and have the showroom support that more from a service level. Because that's what differentiates us more than the retail industry is the emphasis on service. But, you know, I've challenged people before and we say we provide the best service, but retail companies provide 24 seven service. We're open nine to five, five days a week. How is that better service? And, you know, yes, it's, I've heard different responses, but it's just an interesting way to think about it is, you know, we, people can't call us on Saturday, but they can call a retail store. And so, you know, I, I think the idea of just using technology and being more transparent and empowering customers, that's going to be a necessary thing for companies to continue to do well in our business. Because if we don't, as a trade industry, ultimately, they're just going to go to people that do and make it easy and accessible. Are you surprised that that hasn't happened? There is, there, is no, there is no place more dangerous to be than the lobby of the D&D building at two minutes after five f- for a stampede of people that are leaving the building. And on a Friday, to your point, they're not coming back until Monday. And it, it's amazing to me that that hasn't changed in all these years. And I know that Jim Druckmann and 200 Lex, they've experimented with Saturday hours, but it doesn't seem like that's gotten any meaningful traction. Doesn't that just seem like that can't continue? It can't continue, but I don't think the answer is having showrooms necessarily open on the weekend and having these buildings opening on the weekend. So it's technology. I think it's technology. You know, it's communication, you know, whether it's live chat with a customer service team over the weekend or whatever it is. That Do you have all- that? Do you have that now? We don't have that now. Okay. Is that, is that one of the things you're working on? Yeah, it's not a... It's not a big priority. Not the top priority. Okay. Um, but it's... No, I'm just so surprised that... I mean, t- to your point, I am so surprised that every time that we talk to designers, they say, our clients are masters of the universe, and they cannot wrap their head around the fact that, what do you mean I can't come and shop for this incredibly high-end product at 6 o'clock after I get out of work? Oh, no, sorry. The D&D closes. Not only does it close, they literally turn off the air conditioning. That part is true. Well, I I was working with a client until 6.30 on Friday in the showroom, so you can always call me. Well, (laughs) exactly. You might have a separate arrangement on the Stark floors. But but all joking aside, I mean, it couldn't be a a, a less consumer-friendly environment from that perspective. The reason it's so not consumer-friendly is because this notion of what our industry has always been of trade only. And until people can wrap their head around the reality of the world is we are not all trade only. We are trade preferred. That is the answer. And until we have that mindset, it's never going to change. And companies need to have that mindset. Buildings need to have that mindset is, you know, trade only wouldn't let someone in the building. Trade only wouldn't let someone get information. That doesn't work today. We need to be trade preferred. Our, our value proposition to designers needs to be so much stronger than that of retail that it's accepted which it should be because we have the opportunity because we're starting from a place where they're you know, the best clients. You ask, am I surprised that this hasn't happened yet? I'm not surprised because we have the best clients in the industry. You know, If our clients were more fickle than they are, and granted, they're very fickle, but not as fickle as a retail consumer buying one product once every three years, then we wouldn't have been allowed, enabled rather, to ride this wave, so to speak. Yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, our, for our company and for our industry, our su- past success is the biggest hurdle to future success. And we just got to adapt. Yeah. So, so the answer is, and the trade preferred message is, is such an important one because that notion is what has to get into everyone's mindset. And what does that ultimately mean for people? They have to figure that out. Absolutely. Right? 
and and maybe the building doesn't need to stay open longer, though I sure wish the air conditioner would stay on longer, <laughs> Mr. Cohen, if you're listening. But I, I do think that we all collectively as an industry need to recognize that there's this customer that's trying to reach us at off hours. And every designer that you talk to about first dibs, for example, tells you about the great luxury of lying in their bed at 10 or 11 at night, right? And shopping on first dibs and how incredible that is and what a great experience and how it's changed their business. And we have to get there, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many components that all need to be packaged together, you know, between the assortment strategy, the service strategy, the technology strategy, uh, all of that needs to be packaged nicely into how trade preferred will really be something of the future. And again, each company is going to approach it differently. Yeah. We could talk to you all night, but we have to let you go. I'm having so much fun, though. It's it's great. And I mean, there are so many things to talk with you about, and you have so many intelligent thoughts about so many facets of the industry. And I love that you're experimenting and, and trying different things. Is there anything on your list that we didn't talk about, Chad? I feel we've covered it all. I think we've covered it. Okay. I think we've great job interviewing okay. me. It, it was a great conversation. What's your title these days? You're the, you're the president of Scalamandre. So I'm the president of Scalamandre and the senior vice president of Stark. Okay. Um, you know, my father and uncle are chairman and president. We actually okay. don't have a CEO. Is that anyone's a, listening? Is no, that is that a position no, you're looking to fill? I'm joking. I'm joking. Okay. I mean, honestly, for me, <laughs> title is not important. And, right. You know, okay. I think everyone at the company and even outside the company knows my involvement in the company. You know, right. I have the last name. Yes. <laughs> so that definitely makes it right. clear what my my yes. position is. But at the end of the day, as long as we're clear internally about what our roles are and we can operate well, title doesn't mean anything to me. Well, that's great. Thank you very much again for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Chad Stark, who doesn't need a title, okay? He's Chad Stark. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It really helps others to discover the show. We love your feedback. Please give us your thoughts at podcasts at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicholas and Lauren Pirelli, and I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.